Rational discussion, common sense, open debate. RCR, Reality Check Radio with Paul Brennan. All right, Dr. David Bell, formerly of the WHO, will join us, I think, for his third chat with us here at RCR since we started. And it's all about the UN Declaration on Pandemic Prevention, Preparedness and Response. But first, let's hear from this chap. The importance of the pandemic accord is it allows us the opportunity to take the lessons from COVID-19, the pandemic, and to ensure that we are better prepared for next time, that we can prevent the next pandemic, that we're prepared and that we can respond more effectively as countries and collectively. So that's Ashley, Ashley Bloomfield. He went on to say in his pitch. Well, the important thing about the accord process is that it is totally driven by all the member states. 194 members of the World Health Organization are the ones who are chairing it, they're the ones who are putting forward all the ideas, and they're the ones who will decide eventually what goes in the accord. And then, of course, they will decide whether they want to ratify it and sign up to the provisions. Is that right, Ashley? Is that right? Okay, and what else do you have to say for yourself as you persuade us to sign away our medical sovereignty? So the opportunity for us to have actually an agreed accord in future that supports that and helps us to collaborate and work effectively together is just too good an opportunity to miss. In fact, it would be remiss of us not to take the opportunity. Oh, you mean like the way you didn't take the opportunity to exempt people from your jab? Just saying. So that was Ashley Bloomfield, as posted on X yesterday by, I think, the WHO. Like I say, trying to persuade us to give up our medical sovereignty. I wonder how much he was paid for that cheesy bit and all the music. Oh, so reassuring. Dr. David Bell is a public health physician, biotech consultant and global health, former medical officer and scientist at the World Health Organization, WHO, program head for malaria and febrile diseases at the Foundation for Innovative New Diagnostics, FIND, in Geneva, Switzerland, and director of global health technologies at Intellectual Ventures Global Fund in Bellevue, Washington State, USA. We've talked with David Bell a few times already here at RCR about the international health regulations and the global health passport. And he joins us again at RCR. And David, the latest thing that we can talk about is this declaration titled Political Declaration of the United Nations General Assembly High-Level Meeting on Pandemic Prevention, Preparedness and Response. Okay, so is this like the latest in, in the latest chapter, is it in all of this? Yeah, it is a bit. It, it's, I mean, in a way, it's a meaningless declaration, but they they put it forward so that they could use it to say that all countries agreed with, you know, the, the push for these amendments to international health regulations, a treaty, and so on, to concentrate power in the WHO for dealing with pandemics and health emergencies and. It's an interesting one. It was supposed to go through as what they call a silence procedure, which they started in the UN during COVID, which means no one needs to come to vote. They just stay home. And if no one objects to something the UN puts forward, it's deemed as unanimous. Um, Okay. (laughs) In this case, about 11 countries actually objected to this and a number of these procedures. So it didn't really go through unanimously, but they've 
they've announced it as a um, something that all countries agreed to, um, and they've released it anyway. Okay, so what what does the declaration introduce then? What's it all about? What does it mean, like for us here? Let's say. Yeah, it, it actually, if you dig into it, it means a lot. That, that ostensibly, it's to support the. You know, to say all countries agree that we're in an existential crisis because we're going to have, un, you know, constant health emergencies and pandemics, and we need a central authority, i.e., the WHO, with the help of the United Nations itself, to save us, um, and that all countries agree to this. It, it's about twelve pages, and about ninety-five percent of that is on. You know, it talks about all the things like equity empowerment of women and girls access to education is so important etc uh, help helping the global south so it's got all this rhetoric in it yeah what's that uh, got to do with with the outbreak of anything let's say well it, it actually has a bit because the poorer oh. people are and the worse off they are the less they can deal with these crises when they do come so the, the interesting thing here is that the people that wrote this and the institutions that wrote this so they're saying this and it's the usual rhetoric that they rolled out there's some classic paragraphs there that are just gobbledygook but they these are the people these are the institutions who in the last three years have you know backed the the highest concentration of wealth in human history from <laughs> a majority to a minority that they've there's been a huge disempowerment of women and girls in particular. If you look at the figures for unemployment that's gone up across the West and across low-income countries through the COVID response, women and girls are the ones that are disproportionately harmed. They've closed, you know, they pushed the closing of schools for up to one to two years in some countries and massively damaged education. This will, you know, lock in impoverishment for a couple of generations in a lot of countries. The same people who are doing this are writing this. Essentially, it's you know it's garbage in that they clearly don't mean it. They have no intent. The intent of this document is to allow them to repeat this response that caused these harms more often, um, and you know, and earlier. So, you know, it's it's a meaningless document in that way but what it does mean is that these people have absolutely no awareness or certainly no willingness to face what they have just done yeah do and you they think want it, to do it again is it a, is it a lack of awareness because you'd really have to be so unaware wouldn't you you'd have to be like in the cone of silence level unaware to not realize what you've just pointed out is a, is a complete 180 degree projection yeah, I think if you're a sort of a clerk in the UN who's, you know, putting these standard phrases in, uh, you could be unaware. You could just watch CNN and read the New York Times and have absolutely no awareness of what is going on in the world at the moment. Um, if you're one of the more senior people that, who are sort of involved in, you know, putting at a higher level in putting this together, you absolutely know. And, you know, the, those that don't know, it it's not an excuse because if you haven't opened your eyes over the last three years and seen what's happening you know, to society in general and particularly in Western societies where we thought we had democracies and we thought we, you know, we thought freedom of speech, et cetera, is important, then, you know, you've really got no excuse for noticing what's, for not noticing what's going on. The term existential threat, that usually applies to something that's not 
rare or you know very occasional that's like something that's 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 looming over you that could strike at any time well well this is what they're saying that yeah they're saying you know the next pandemic is just around the corner we have to prepare for it you know since since um the spanish flu in 1918 19 before we had antibiotics and most people died in the spanish flu from and different bacterial infections on top of the flu yeah, there's been a, a small flu outbreak in the late 50s, one in the late 60s, and then we had COVID, which it turns out has almost certainly escaped from a lab. It was a, a mm. pathogen that people had fiddled with to make it you know, gain function, a pathological function. So these are extremely rare events. The only reason for they're going to become far more frequent is if people keep... Um, performing gain-of-function or other ways and of leaking from pathogens lab. and then yeah. leaking them out from lab. So that is the existential threat right there. Well, is... it's certainly not a natural threat. So, you know, and, and, yeah, since the 1920s, we have modern medicine. We have antiviral drugs. We, you know, we have all sorts of what we have better nutrition, better sanitation. We have all sorts of ways of, that are, of um, dealing with these and all sorts of reasons why we found this susceptible. So it, it is really, the, the if there is a threat, then it is due to the hand of humans. And these are the same humans who are involved in this whole push to, you know, lock us down more often. So if we agree to this, we're helping those who are harming us. It sounds like they, you know, you're talking about, uh, you know, this whole, if anyone doesn't speak up, it's considered like, you know, thumbs up. It sounds like sort of any any opportunity to make this happen, to find any way through, they they will take. Yeah, I think so. That they need to build this. Um, you know, I think it's a false impression, but they need to build this impression of consensus that all countries are behind them, that and therefore the people of the world are behind them and need this. So that if you are opposing this, you feel like you're out on your own. You know, we've got to remember that the delegates to the to the UN and the WHO and so on, a lot of these people, you know, as the World Economic Forum has told us, they're groomed by the World Economic Forum. You know, Klaus Schwab says he's penetrated the cabinets of these penetrated countries. Penetrated the cabinet. <laughs> yes, indeed. So so, so this uh, isn't, yeah. you know, the people of the world speaking at the UN. It's a very small group of often well-groomed people who see themselves as part of an international elite, not as part often of the country that they're ostensibly representing. So what does it mean then in terms, because there'll be money involved, right? There's always money involved. There'll be a lot of money for pharma, a lot of money for global health in general. They're talking about $31.5 billion a year, $10.5 billion is new money, just for the sort of surveillance network and so on. And then you know they will find viral variants in this big surveillance network that this is backing. They, because we get viral variants all the time, it's nature. Um, they, they can say that one of these is a potential threat. They can lock countries down and then they'll, they have the 100 day vaccine, which was also talked about at the UN a couple of days ago. And they'll roll that out with very little regulatory oversight. And they'll say, you can get your freedom back to visit your dying mother if you take our vaccine. And that'll be, you know, $20. So, the, the you know it'll seem free like the COVID vaccines because the government pays for it, but then you'll pay for it in your taxes. And it's, so, really, the I mean, this whole in a way, this whole 
It's a big business proposition to concentrate taxpayers' money in the hands of a small group of corporations and their investors. The the search for pathogens and the money that could be involved in in facilitating that, Hmm. I mean, could we view that as just a way of finding pathogens to gain a function and release you know it's it's like paying for their their um their research into what they can throw at us they next it, it kind of feels like it might be that well it, it appears to be doesn't it even for covid um you know the us taxpayers coughed up money that was sent to the wuhan institute of virology that it appears um according to including us intelligence agencies appeared to have um, resulted in a lab leak of a virus that was modified through that money through that program to come back and and then yeah this was used as a reason to then extract more money from the pit for the taxpayers who originally gave that money so um and, but to do that globally so yeah it, it this will keep happening and people will do the research because you know it's interesting it's fun to work in these labs um, it's a you need a career. This will pay for you know your next holiday, your kids at school, or whatever. Yeah. And you don't you can blind yourself to the big picture of what's happening. You can pretend that you're doing this because we need vaccines or something, you know, which we don't if we don't keep releasing dangerous pathogens, perhaps for for these pathogens anyway. But you, you, so you can convince yourself um, if you're working in this industry that you're doing an overall good. As you can convince yourself, you know, that I know people who've convinced themselves that locking, advocating for lockdowns that have killed thousands and thousands of people was an overall good. I mean, it's not, but we're very good at convincing ourselves if we've got a personal incentive to do so. Is there any ethical question about going out and searching for things that you're not aware of that are there, that could be there, finding them, and even discovering them unlocks a potential in some way to do harm is that is that a sensible thing to do or is it better to be not so proactive and just take what what comes naturally uh, i mean humans have always been like this haven't they you know we figured out how to split the atom that's brought good and that's brought bad um i don't think there's anything wrong with being curious as humans but there's something wrong with allowing that curiosity to hurt others. So, and that includes, you know, draining resources away from things that are more important. So there's nothing wrong with going out and looking for, I mean, you're not looking for potential pathogens, really. You're just because if they're pathogens, they'd already be harming us. So you're just searching, you know, you're trying to expand our knowledge of nature. But then what, where it goes wrong, if you then use that, um, to instill fear. So that, that nature has been there, you know, for the hundreds of thousands of years of human existence. But suddenly tomorrow, when you've seen it and sequenced it, it's suddenly an existential threat to humanity. So we have to concentrate more wealth in the pockets of rich people. So if you take it that far, then it's obviously harmful and you better not, you're better off not looking in the first place. But I don't think you can say basic curiosity is wrong. No, I wasn't thinking that, but uh, but some things are better left undisturbed, right? <laughs> yeah, indeed, and you know that's why there is a moratorium on gain of function research in the US at the time that NIH sent money 
to the Wuhan Institute of Virology to do gain of function research. Um, it, it wasn't allowed in the US under the Obama administration because of concerns which a lot of scientists raised in a letter to the administration of the great harm that could come from this. So you're taking pathogens that are not very harmful and not a threat, and you're turning them into a threat to see then whether you can stop that threat. So, you know, it's not, you don't have to be a genius to see where that can go wrong. And in terms of conflicts, uh, and uh, just bear with me for a moment here, but we've seen with the current war that really you can fire weapons at each other endlessly try and gain territory, it doesn't seem to be as important as it used to be in a conflict to actually have territory. It's more about control. And it seems that biological warfare is probably a kind of mode of warfare of the future. Is there really any element of this risk of, of I don't know, contributing to a biological warfare arsenal through this sort of work at this sort of scale? I don't know. I mean, this is, you know, out of my field, Paul. Um, so the Wuhan Institute of Virology is, you know, it's it's run by the, um, you know, the armed services in the in China. Um, the DOD in the US was heavily involved in running the COVID response. But you As could if argue, it was a biological weapon, right? They were responding kind in, of in that Indeed, mode. indeed. But you could argue, you know, they could argue that was out of an abundance of caution because gee, it could have been. Um, it wasn't much of a weapon in that, you know, the average age of death is actually older than the average age of dying from other causes. Um, and, you know, the overall infection fatality rate is about 0.15% globally. So it's it's tiny. But it also showed you don't need that sort of a threat. You know, you don't need something that kills a lot of people. All you need is to have something that you can build fear around, and then you can undo societies. And, you know, if you look at what's happening in the West in terms of I mean, just the, the corrosion of society, the, the damage to economies, the damage to productivity and so on over the last few years, then... You know, if that was an act of um, aggression, it was a fairly successful one, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, you could argue that just the, the psychological effects were yeah. a kind of a, you know, that they, they were part of the weapon, let's say, if you're thinking that way. What part of the world is less likely to be, to buy in to all of this? Is there an area of the world? Is there a continent? Is there... You know, is there a part of of the global community that is out, is going to fall outside of this that won't buy in? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I, I think you know the US is interesting. The US is very split on this, and because of the very strong federal system, the states have a lot of power, and there's a sort of something you don't get in Australia, and New Zealand, a really innate. Um, suspicion of government among a lot of people here who, you know, this is where I'm based now. Um, and I used to think that was a negative. Now I can see it's actually a strong positive because when you get a a government that, you know, if you get a government that would like to do harm, um, it's a lot harder for them to do so. Um, I think 
so I think, you know, the US is interesting. It's sort of split. And, you know, where I live, you wouldn't know that COVID had ever happened or that they were trying to revive it at the moment because no one's really interested. Right. Um, other states are different. They're right on board. The I think Africa, the African continent is really interesting because they have a very this strong history of colonialism, which is very much what is happening now through the COVID and this concentration of wealth. You know, big, you know, it's really Western governments and corporations working together to extract wealth from the globe in general, which includes African populations. And there is a very low uptake of the vaccines in Africa. People are very suspicious of this sort of thing. They can see, uh, you know, that they have a strong social memory of these same people who are running the show now with COVID doing a lot of harm and destroying their societies in the past. So they're not as susceptible, I think, to the propaganda that, you know, most people in the West are. I remember some years ago, um, I think it was in Pakistan, there was some, you know, uh, killing of health workers who I think were involved in a polio uh, vaccination campaign. Yeah. And, yeah, and at, at the yeah. time, you know, it sounded like terrible. How could these people do that to people trying to help them? But it kind of makes you think now, <laughs> no way of justifying that, but you can see that uh, suspicion, let's say, has been around for quite some time, hasn't it? It has. And, you know, that Pakistan thing was very unfortunate. That was probably partially related to the, the Bin Laden episode because they used the ruse of vaccination to get um, the samples where they managed to identify the family there. So uh, I okay. think... Yeah, and that was extremely unfortunate for the health workers who who suffered there. And you know, the polio is a bad way to go. Polio vaccination probably has had a big impact overall on improving yeah. health in these countries, as an example. Um, but th this is the problem, and you know, we're, we're seeing an increase in distrust of the health services now. And you know, we, okay, we can talk about polio, then we talk about the COVID vaccine in Africa where, you know, half the population's under 20, so they weren't at any risk of COVID. Um, they have far worse diseases. And then, you know, and, and WHO does it, they look at the serology in Africa in late 2021 and find that almost everyone in the population is already immune. Then they go and they put in this, the biggest ever public health program there, to try to vaccinate 70% of the population against COVID, which they're already immune to, et cetera. And people can see this. They can see this diversion of resources from the stuff that's actually killing their kids. They can see the increased poverty in Africa and so on that is a result of this, uh, you know, not being able to go to the market, losing their, their employment, et cetera. So, again, you know, this is what destroys um, confidence and trust in what are good public health programs. And um, the, the, this is, you know, this is going to happen increasingly. So I think really public health has been taken over by people who are solely interested in profit. And the more we go down that road, the less people will be able to distinguish what is actually a good public health intervention from what's obviously just gouging money from poorer people. That sounds like uh, a bit of a catastrophe, actually. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Uh, I was just reading this morning, actually, the UN SDG website talking about you know, it's another 390 million people 
in moderate to severe food shortage since 2019. You know, this, this is what has been done. People aren't wow. okay. quite grasping. It was part of an article on talking about the the actual, you know, there are more people on the verge of starvation now than there ever has been in human history. And a lot of this increase is due to what happened over COVID. And it is not in the Western press. People aren't hearing about this because it's not popular now in the Western press to talk about any negative effects that could possibly be pinned to the last three years of the the COVID response. Yet it's the biggest story on the planet still. It's the biggest story on the planet, and it's going to get much worse probably in the next couple of years. Oh it's by far the biggest story on the planet for the vast majority of people. And that, and just sort of editing it out of yeah. of any discourse is is kind of weird, actually. And and we're putting you know unprecedented amount of money back into this. We start off talking about these program to find rare virants for supposed pandemics that in the last hundred years don't even form a blip on the chart of you know overall mortality and life years lost from disease the i uh, as i understand it this declaration awaits signatures from governments who will i'm no, sure no, claim- it, it was it's been announced as being passed it, it was oh, part okay. of a silence procedure which means no one had to oh, vote right. on it you but some that, country yeah. 11 countries sent a letter saying they disagree um so they just put it out anyway and they said you know countries agree and here it is and so it, it's not going to change anything directly except that they are using it and they already have been to pretend that all countries of the world and all people are backing concentration of power in the WHO. Obviously, no, I don't think any country has ever had any vague sort of referendum on anything. There's been nothing. It's it's not a zilch radio silence here. And yet it's the biggest change really in Western sovereignty. well, we have an election. For the last hundred years. We so. have a general election in three weeks, David, three yeah. weeks. And I, I'm guessing that like some other Western countries, you have a party that's all over this and says it's great and another party who's all over it and says it's great. Yeah, that's choice. it. Yeah, there's yeah. no there's no diff. All right, and, and it's just a part of the progression, isn't it? It's an inc- another incremental step. It's an incremental step this towards this. Yeah, and it's not just health. It's, you know, it's climate, it's everything else. It's this idea that we are suddenly in, as they call it, a polycrisis. Oh. <laughs> uh, and that's a term they're using now. So suddenly everything is going on in the world and we need the UN and the WHO that used to be just servants of countries. You caught them when they, we wanted them. Yeah, We need them to run the show and tell us what to do to save us. And that's the story that they're pushing with the help, unfortunately, of most of our governments. And you know it's going to be a conveyor belt of pathogens, don't you, once all at uh, this, it, it, at full it, noise. It'll just yeah. be one after the other. It'll never stop. Yeah, I mean, technically pathogen is something that does a lot of harm. It'll certainly be a conveyor belt of threats. Oh, threats, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They don't need to be pathogens. They just need to be threats. But they, they, but they'll be couched as that. Yes. Yeah. All right. Gosh, it just keeps getting better, doesn't it? <laughs> it's not. You know, they're, they're trying hard, but there's also, I think, people are waking up to this a little bit more. So, yeah. Hopefully, they'll just run up against the wall in the end. But we have to build that wall, I guess. 
All right, Dr. David Bell, good to uh, speak with you again. Yeah, thanks, Paul. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.